You know, one of the, uh, I, I think one of the great things about uh, VBS this last week is, is the number of kids that were actually not from this congregation. We, uh, I think the majority of the kids that were there really were kids uh, from the area, um, which uh, means that it's a you know, good outreach that uh, we were able to have to the community. Um, hopeful that maybe some might show up today, <laughs> you know, for, um, um, for one of the worship services uh, for the singing. But uh, anyway, this summer, good summer this summer, great, beautiful summer day today. And uh, during this summer, we've been exploring the blueprint that, that Peter gives us in Second Peter for a life that is effective, that makes a difference. And he says that such a life is built on, you know, these different levels, the foundation of faith on which is built goodness, on which is built knowledge, on which is built self-control, on which is built perseverance, on which is built now way up there, we now come to this level of godliness, okay? And to explain these different levels, I've often uh, used some examples from my house uh, where, you know, there's decay going on and various things that need to be done and to, to uh, get into shape and things like that. And so by now, some of you might be thinking that uh, I live in a dump, you know, um, that uh, it's in pretty rough shape. And, and actually, I haven't told you the whole story because... Um, I've also got these corner vents you know, up in the peaks on the sides of my house that look like they have not been painted since the Truman administration. I mean, you know, it uh, uh, really badly needs, needs paint up there. And uh, so, it's, you know, like I, I would say it's probably a little more than, I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm a lousy judge of distance, but probably at least 30 feet high. It's uh, like two, two and a half, almost three stories up when you account for the slope and things like that. Uh, finding, you know, contractors to do this and things like that is kind of difficult and expensive. So I was using a borrowed ladder and got a, uh, a, a ladder leveler because the slope and everything else. And, and Faith, granddaughter, was, was with us for a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, so I thought, man, this kid is strong as, as anything. So I was going to have her hold the bottom of the ladder while I climb up there, you know, to paint that thing, and this is a you know one of these great big massive heavy fiberglass ladders. So I climbed up the two and a half, three stories, whatever that thing is, or, uh, to try to get to the to the vents. All the while, <clears throat> listening to Faith say things like, "Old men shouldn't climb ladders like this," you know. <laughs> I mean, when you're, when you're 13 years she's 13 years old, and when you're 13, somebody 30 years old is, is really old. So it was like she was watching Methuselah climbing, you know, <laughs> up here, up this ladder. And then on the way up, you know, she was giving me a pep talk, like, you're going to fall off on your head and die. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, man, this is not exactly what I need here to build confidence as I'm climbing this ladder up, up here to these peaks. Um, so finally, I, I reached the top of the ladder, and it turns out, you know, that this ladder, as long as it was, it could only reach the very bottom of, you know, this vent. And uh, the vent was going to need to be scraped and painted and all this kind of stuff. And after this wonderful pep talk that she gave me on the way up there and uh, feeling this ladder that on the ground it felt, you know, like down on terra firma, this thing was incredibly heavy, but up there it was wobbling kind of like my knees. And... and um, felt like it was paper thin. And so I got up there, reached that point, and said, I don't think so, and, and climbed right back down again. I, I never did paint those things. They're, they're still, still up there looking like they needed paint since the Truman administration. 
because it was freaky up there, you know? It really was. It was just freaky up there, and few can climb to that rarefied air. I found, you know, even contractors, I'd talk to them and say, and they'd say, oh, yeah, I'd love to paint your house as long as it's not high, you know? <laughs> it's like, Great, well, it's kind of high. Um, but I have great admiration for roofers who can paint that high. I really do, because they occupy really rarefied air. In other words, air where few dare go uh, up, up that high. Now, I first met this thing that I'm calling rarefied air when I was a kid growing up in uh, the Battle Creek area of St. Paul. I know there's a Battle Creek, Michigan, but there's also a Battle Creek in Minnesota. And it's not a town. It's, it's simply the name of the community in uh, the city of St. Paul. And the landmark in, in that area is the Battle Creek Ski Jump. Now, if you have seen the, the old promos for ABC Wild World of Sports, you know, where they've got the big ski jump, the guy comes down and they say, and the agony of defeat. And this guy wipes out coming down the ski jump. And it looks like no human being could survive this crash. Well, the ski jump that he is going off of is the same size, basically, as, as this Battle Creek ski jump that I'm talking about. Um, and actually, uh, you know, in my area, you know, it, well, it, it, normally in, in, in various areas throughout the country, kids, um, you know, would do things recreationally like play Little League Baseball or play soccer, things like that. In my area, a lot of the kids in my area would go ski jumping. I mean, that's what they would do recreationally. I did not do that. I was not in, in that crowd. But... Um, uh, they, they actually had two ski jumps. One was a smaller one to try to get used to it and to train for it. And then the larger one, the Battle Creek ski jump, that you could see all, all over the place. Well, one summer, because in the summer, you know, there's nobody around this thing. One summer, I, was able, I, I went with a group of buddies, and, and we climbed the Battle Creek ski jump just to see what it was like up there. And these things, now to give you some perspective on this, these things, uh, regulation size anyway, is about 390 feet tall, which is the equivalent of a 40, that's four zero story building, okay? Um, so I climbed this 40-story building uh, to the top of the Battle Creek ski jump, and I looked out, and, and I came to these conclusions when I did that. Number one, no way was I ever going ski jumping. Okay, and number two, my classmates who were ski jumpers were absolutely out of their ever living, living minds, you know, to to do this because that was rarefied air up there. Man, I wanted to get down. There, there, you know, very few dare go to that kind of a level up there. So here we are today, way up here, on this level called godliness, rarefied air, where very few will go. Some who don't dare go to that level will criticize those who do go to that level, as though no one ought to go to that level of godliness, not really fully understanding what this level is even all about. I mean, what does it mean to be godly? What does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, it means to be like God, godly. And God sent His Son into this world to really, among other things, demonstrate to us firsthand the character, the nature, who God is. Which means that if you want to be godly, it means not just to be like God, but to be like Jesus, to be like Christ, okay? Um, 
but what does that mean? Well, in the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul tries to explain some things to us about godliness, what that, what that really looks like. Because uh, it is such rarefied air, we don't have all that many people who have been there to that level to look out. So what does it look like? Paul's been there. He says this in Romans 8.28, this verse that so many people uh, who are Christians have committed to memory because it is such a valuable part of Scripture. It says in the NIV, it says, And we know that in all things God works for good for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Great promise, isn't it? It's great to know that you got God in your corner, that whatever it is uh, in your circumstances, you may have some difficult circumstances, but God's got things. I mean, He's got it. He's, he's going he's to work this out for good for those who love Him. But wh- who is it who gets to define what is good? You know, uh, I, I would dare say that the, the majority of God's children who claim this verse assume, really, that God would agree with them in terms of what might be classified as good. You know, in other words, that the individual gets to d- define what might be good. But uh, if you have children or you've had children, imagine if you let those children define what is good. You know, what would they come up with? The twins, you know, thinking about this, the twins could come up with a number of things, but among them probably would be chocolate milk, uh, candy, and play on Papa's truck, you know. And uh, among those things, probably you know, chocolate milk, might, there might be some goodness in there, okay? Um, maybe not a steady diet of it, but, but some goodness in there. Uh, Playing Papa's truck, probably not so good for the truck, and probably not so good for the kids. And the candy, well, you know, do, do with it as, as you will. But um, we don't want to let a kid necessarily define for themselves what is good, because they may not know. So what about God? You think that God might have a perspective on things for us that we don't have? And what that means is that when we come to this section of Scripture, what we can see is that what God wants is the best for you, the best for me. And that, that is a great promise to, to hang on to. But along the way, what that might mean is things like this, that uh, sometimes it means that he might let you fall a little now, so that you might gain from that, learn from that, grow from that, in order to not really fall greatly later. He might allow you to go ahead and put your foot in your mouth right now so that you don't really mess up things later. And at the time, when you're going through certain things, you may look at it and say, how in the world can this be good? You know, not realizing God's perspective that might allow something now in order to deal with something that's down the road. In, in other words, he might give you something that might not seem good at the moment, but winds up giving you ultimately the best. When I um, go to a mattress store, I can see there um, they've got different categories, different classes of mattresses, okay, where you can go and you can see, see this one that says, Good. They never, they never put one out there that says horrible, okay? <clears throat> no, good is the lowest rank, then better, and then best, okay? Now, the best is always the highest priced. Who doesn't want the best? I mean, it's like, come on, give me the best. The problem is, give me the best for the price of the good, okay? 
then we're good, okay? That's great. Well, God wants to give you the best, okay? This one over here, he, that's what he wants you to go home with, all right? Not just with a mattress, but, but in, in life. So what's the best? What, what, what would be over there? This is what Paul talks about in, in uh, verse 30. He, sa- he says that the best, the ultimate good, is to be glorified with Jesus. So he, he says this, And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified means to share the glory of Jesus, which means to stand on that winner's podium with Jesus. You know, to receive the crown of, thorn, or crown of thorns. No, the crown of olive leaves, which is what uh, the victors would wear, or the gold medal, we think of it uh, in, in the Olympics today, alongside of Jesus when he comes with a new heaven and the new earth, and you get to stand there with him. Okay, so you are glorified. You get to be there with Christ, getting the best. Now, getting there means being, uh, according to what Paul is talking about here, being conformed to the likeness of the Son, to become like Jesus with this godliness that we were just talking about. So verse 29, very next verse after the one that everybody memorizes, says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. This is God's will for you, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, Jesus actually did this in reverse. Okay, He starts out as Jesus, and instead, he gets conformed, as he comes into this world, to the likeness of sinful people. So that sinful people, like us, might be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Okay, so he comes down that we might go up. He, he becomes conformed to be like us, that we might become conformed to be like him. And uh, this means, you know, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. But this sounds impossible. Because how in the world can you possibly be conformed to be like one who is perfect? Jesus is perfect. How in the world can you possibly do this? This is truly rarefied air. It would be like trying to set up your home on top of Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. People cannot live that way. And, and this needs to be something, a place where we can live. I mean, yes, it is rarefied air, but it's not that rarefied. People need to be able to live there. So what does this really mean? to be conformed, to be like Jesus. Well, in Mark 10, one day, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus, and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In other words, we know what is good, teacher, and we want you to give us whatever it is we want. At this point, Jesus had to be thinking, okay, (laughs) what is it? Lay it on me here. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, let us have the best. But we're going we're to we're take it by force. In other words, we're going to grab up for it. We're going to not wait to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus for this. Instead, what we're going to do is we're just simply going to say this, this is ours because we want it. Now, what they're asking is, is, a, is, a, is a really a prayer of faith because uh, they believe that he will be coming in glory. And uh, yet Jesus has, has a problem with this. So he goes on to say this as he clarifies this in verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's saying this, that if you want the best, then what you're going to need to do is to be conformed to be like Jesus, which does not mean to be perfect, but rather it means to serve. It means to be putting yourself not in first place, but rather to look for somebody to serve. Godliness is being like Jesus, not being better than Jesus. And Jesus came as a servant. Now, with this, Jesus knew that he needed to give some kind of an object lesson. Or the disciples just weren't going to get it. So the night that he was betrayed, when the, the Last Supper was celebrated, Jesus did one more thing. He took a towel, he knelt down, and he washed his disciples' feet. Now, that was a task that was reserved for the lowest servant. Think cleaning toilets, okay? And John 13 then says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Go and do like I have done. In other words, if we want to attain that rarefied air of godliness, it means to be conformed to Jesus. And what Jesus is, fundamentally, first and foremost, is one who has been conformed into this world so that he might serve. So therefore, to be conformed to Jesus means not to be somebody who is, uh, you know, holier than thou or, you know, never sins or, or something like that, but rather it is somebody who serves somebody else. Now, we know this, right? I mean, intellectually, we know this. People might, you know, periodically do something nice for somebody else, you know, things like that. They might serve somebody else. They might go out and, and, and uh, you know, work in a charity or something like that. But normally what happens is that there's a kind of a transaction that takes place, a reciprocity that takes place, where I do something nice for you, you do something nice for me, or you do something nice for me, I do something nice for you. Um, you do something nasty to me, well, okay, well, yeah, you started it. Okay, nasty back there. Uh, there's a reciprocity that takes place. Or somebody might be, um, you know, you, you, you might, you know, it's, sometimes you've got people who will do something nice because they are compensated. They are paid to do so. Okay? But what Jesus is saying here is do this not because there's a transaction, not because there's reciprocity, but simply because God has first done it for you. So conform to Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, by finding somebody to serve, and oftentimes that means finding somebody close to you, somebody that would be very easy to overlook, problems that would be easy not to see, and instead open your eyes and your heart and your mind to see those problems and think, how can I contribute to a solution to that problem? How can I help to be an answer to that issue? that problem, 
and serve somebody else. Many times, you know, with the, with the parable of the, of the, of the uh, Good Samaritan, you know, it was a great parable. We know that parable. But many times, um, I think that the reason why we know it intellectually but don't translate it is because of blindness. Not seeing the problems that are in front of our faces. Okay? Now, with this, a lot of times Christians think that humility demands that they uh, look at themselves as though they are not measuring up what you are not doing. But I'm going to suggest something a little bit different today. Yes, indeed, do that. You know, in other words, examine your heart. See, do I have a servant's heart? Okay? But do, do this, okay, which for some of us might sound a little refreshing. Catch yourself doing something right. Okay? Catch yourself doing something right. Because what that does is when you catch yourself doing something right, that maybe this time, this time I did stop, I did see, I did look, I did try to find a solution to this problem. Catch yourself doing something right because what that does is it reinforces for you the direction that you ought to be going. Okay? And that is good. Humility means seeing things clearly, which includes seeing when you do things right. All right? So, you want to you experience that rarefied air? Yeah, ask, do I have a servant's heart? Open your eyes, then do it. Serve somebody for Jesus' sake. That is rarefied air. That is godliness. And that is a life that makes a difference.